It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle one, the package is being delivered. On the show, we talk a lot about the state of the Orwellian world we found ourselves in. Big data, corporate and governmental surveillance. You know, Big Brother. In 1949, George Orwell had a vision of the future. Today, that vision is still a best-selling novel, and his prophecy remains as terrifying as ever. But where did it come from? What's the historical context? To answer these questions, we have author and assistant professor at the University of Alabama, Lawrence Capello on the show, who wrote a book called None of Your Damn Business, Privacy in the United States from the Gilded Age to the Digital Age. In it, he traces the over 100 year history of how the surveillance state came to be. I'm Ben Maku from my apartment in New York, and you're listening to Cyber. So Lawrence, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I, you know, I always talk about surveillance and like it's this big brother society that we live in. And sometimes I think we don't often take a moment to think about the context in which this whole thing was created. So your book, it really fascinates me because it, it seems to do exactly just that. Talks about how we came to the place we are in terms of big data and the way that big data is being harvested on citizens and how we're just only really coming to terms with it now. So I guess to start things off, when did this big data harvest begin in earnest? You know that expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? <laughs> yeah. uh, the, his the history of data surveillance in America is really very much in line with that. To properly understand modern surveillance, especially all of these things we're talking about now with like contact tracing and cluster tracing, it's really useful to know the larger story. So there are two major historical developments that make the rise of big data and modern data surveillance possible. They're both conceived with the best of intentions and both end up significantly eroding our privacy and kind of creating the mess that we're in now. So the first one comes from the tech world in the 1950s, and that's the use of mainframe processors, where the science finally develops these big ass computers that are used to fill up entire rooms and the US government is buying these things on a large scale. The second development comes 20 years before that and it's from the political world. And that's FDR's New Deal and the creation of the American social safety net. My friends, since my annual message to the Congress on January 4th last, I have not addressed the general public over the air. In the many weeks since that time, the Congress has devoted itself to the arduous task of formulating legislation necessary to the country's welfare. It has made and is making distinct progress. And just in case anyone forgot from high school, the New Deal, that's about providing massive financial government assistance to Americans to help us get us through the Great Depression. Um, in a lot of ways, it saves the nation before we get into World War II, and it's kind of to a degree like what the CARES Act was trying to do today. And while this is definitely done in the interest of public welfare, this is also, though, the first time that the government starts collecting massive amounts of data about its citizens in ways that go way beyond what we would usually just ask during the census. And it's also the first time we all get social security numbers, which means it's the first time every American has this unique number that's assigned specifically to them. 
No, look, this all makes sense. Don't, don't misunderstand. Before you can give benefits to someone, you need to know things about them. And in some instances, all the federal government needed was a name, a date of birth, and an address. But in most cases, if you wanted to engage with government relief during the New Deal and the Great Depression, that meant that you had to give more personal details, things like financial information, things like criminal history, marital status, medical history, level of educational attainment. And in response to the Depression, the government collects way more data than it ever had in the past. Again, not out of some like sinister big brother move with like the Illuminati and the robes and the whatnot. Um, this is in the interest of public welfare. Then after World War II, these two developments, the massive data collection of the New Deal and the use of mainframe computers, they start to overlap. And so, yes. so just, just, to, just to cut in for one second. Mm -hmm. So essentially what you're saying is crisis and government response in an earnest, you know, positive way, starts to give birth to this sense of we need we need as much data on citizens as we as we require to provide these services. Yeah, and then and then what happens? Yeah, you know the the historians try not to kind of relate the past to the present. It's you know that's the stuff that's usually good history, but the parallels are striking between then and now. Yeah, it's this massive, very very well-intended program that's meant to help Americans and data collection is a big part of that. And it ends up kind of turning on us. So yeah, I mean, there is definitely a, a warning sign here. When the earliest computers hit the scene in the 1950s, the government becomes one of the first customers for companies like IBM and the Rand Corporation. And this is the key. Prior to the widespread use of consumers, federal offices like the IRS or Social Security Department or Education and Welfare, they maintain their own records. And a lot of that stuff's in like file cabinets. So privacy is still intact because how are you going to access it? It's a gigantic pain in the ass. But now with computers, you have all this new information that was collected. And very shortly thereafter, instead of putting them in file cabinets where it's hard to track down, they're starting to be stored in databases. And so by the 50s and 60s, we don't just see a super increase in the collection of information about Americans. But also we see this new technological ability to streamline this data and make it much easier to access. But here's the real kicker. It's much easier to share. You don't have to reproduce it. You can just copy it and then send it to someone else. And this is the big deal. This doesn't sneak up on anyone. Immediately, Americans inside and outside of government start to take notice. I mean, George Orwell wrote 1984 in the late 40s. So, I mean, this idea of government surveillance and to be wary of technological progress was definitely on people's minds, even when this is happening in the 50s and 60s. Now, some people love the idea of data collection. And the ones who really love it are academics, especially sociologists, because this is the first time ever in the history of the social sciences where you can grab all of this data and get a really good comprehensive picture of the obstacles that are facing marginalized communities of exactly what the impact of Jim Crow does to people on a level of poverty and educational attainment. All of these social questions that even now in the 21st century, if you're a sociologist, you use big data because it gives you an, you know, a window into problems that's backed by science. It can help you come up with better solutions. So there is this big push from the academic community and also from those who are socially conscious to keep this data alive and shared by the American government. But at the same time, there's this whole group of second people 
who start expressing fears that this would be the death of privacy and that it would give rise to the age of what they call the computerized man, where all of us are just going to be boiled down to data points and no, no, our individuality would just be kind of suppressed. Now, these it's just the idea of yeah. the idea of system, systemization of humanity. Absolutely. Something that Orwell talked about and something that there was already a really strong body of work in popular literature and science fiction, which is, you know, in the 50s and 60s started to become mainstream popular culture. So by the end of the 60s, the stage is set because now major corporations are starting to use computers. It's not just governments. And because there are no data privacy laws yet, these corporations, they just start grabbing as much data as they can from the government records. I'm talking about the kind of businesses that thrive on information, businesses where information is their lifeblood. So things like banks, things like insurance companies, credit bureaus, and also employment investigation firms, the people who would do like a background check on someone before you give them a job. And this makes sense. It's not, again, like they're being sinister. It's that information helps these businesses thrive, become more efficient. And as corporations are getting all of these troves of information from the government, they're also sharing it with each other. Banks share with insurance companies, insurance companies care with the credit bureaus, and it's all being stored on computers. So now it's incredibly easy to access. And I can't... So, yeah. to, so to what degree do you think then also is this being driven by capitalism? It's absolutely positively the American privacy experience. Capitalism is center stage. Um, and you can really see that not just in the fact that corporations take this data with such vigor, but also in the arguments that they use in the 70s when people start trying to come up with the laws to prevent their access to data. We'd have no real laws in the late 60s yet. It's like the Wild West. But People are starting to get super concerned about their privacy. Books start coming out, articles are written, TV news jumps all over it. And then after Watergate, we have this tipping point. Because one thing we realized with the Nixon administration is they were using big data to start targeting political opponents. And everybody starts investigating how bad things were getting. And these investigations uncover really troubling stuff. There were thousands of data banks that had no oversight, all agreed Everyone, left and right, liberals and conservatives, all agree that laws were wholly inadequate to protect privacy in America. It's this crazy time where you have like champions of the far right, like William F. Buckley, being, you know, completely lockstep with like champions of the far left, talking about how like, you know, this is an issue where, you know, privacy is a fundamental aspect of the human condition and it needs to be protected. So to go back to what you're saying about capitalism, Congress gears up and they're passing the Privacy Act of 1974, which is pretty much one of the first and only federal laws ever about data collection and data surveillance. But right before the law gets passed, major corporate lobbies start pushing back on Congress and they say that these privacy protections, establishing rules of what they can and can't do with people's data, that it's going to destroy their companies, that it's going to create economic waste, that it, this is anti-business and anti-capitalistic. And, you know, this is the big, big nanny state coming in and, and preventing business from doing their thing. So at the end of the day, the when when in reality, you had more of a it was they were creating the nanny states. Absolutely. Um, and so in the end, the Privacy Act ends up excluding private companies and it offers only really minimum protections for information privacy. And it's filled with all of these loopholes. So when you fast forward a couple of years to the Reagan administration, which, if you remember, is all about, you know, what business needs is for government to get off its back. You know, a very kind of old school notion of capitalism. Um, they start attacking the social welfare programs in the interest of small government. And this is when the government starts doing data mining among their own records and consumer records to start looking for waste and fraud. They start looking for people who are cheating the welfare system. They also start using big, big data surveillance as a way to cut 
the welfare state that was largely created by the New Deal. And so by the late 80s, in the name of small government and in the name of corporate efficiency, America soon has this de facto national governmental database, and it has the weakest privacy protections of all the advanced democracies. I just need you to understand that and everyone to understand that. By the end of the 1990s, as we're on the cusp of the internet age, America, largely because of this argument for corporate efficiency ends up having the weakest privacy protections of all of the advanced democracies. But which is interesting yeah. because which is interesting because the American I mean, I'm I'm not American. I'm Canadian. Mm -hmm. And we are, you know, if you look at certain far right, or far right or right wing media, they'll accuse Canada of being this, you know, near communist socialist state. Sure. And yet <laughs> and yet <laughs> you have a situation where corporate greed will facilitate more surveillance. Right. And clearly did by the end of the 90s. Absolutely. But it's, you know, a really the elevated way of looking at this problem is that it wasn't necessarily just corporate greed, although that definitely comes into play. It's that we start talking about it too much in black and white terms, where privacy either is something that has to be protected at all costs or privacy is something that's going to dismantle businesses. When in actuality, there's both a positive and a negative. Because the fact is, big data does make corporations more efficient in ways that very much do positively affect American lives and international lives. These lack of regulations also kind of helps, does help pave the way for the innovations that you see in the late, in the early 90s and the late 90s out of Silicon Valley and the tech bubble. And so there is a lot of positive. There's also a significant, significant negative. And any mature conversation about privacy, I think, needs to understand that in the end, the goal should be this third path where you have regulations that are specific enough and powerful enough to protect privacy because, I mean, the extent to which our laws are inadequate cannot be understated. But at the same time, there is the extent to which privacy regulations could be at odds, not just with what companies want, but also with the degree of privacy that Americans are willing to sacrifice for things like convenience. It's important as a privacy advocate to remember too, there's always going to be millions and millions and millions of people who don't care about their privacy. They just don't. Um, but the thing is, there are you know millions and millions of people who do as well. What we needed was an adequate balance between the many, many technological wondrous deeds that could be performed while at the same time making sure that privacy was protected. By the time we but, get, yeah, go on. I was gonna say, but we're, we're at the point of the late 90s, so the late 90s is also right around the corner from maybe the most significant infringement on American citizens and their privacy in US history. Absolutely. Right after 9-11 and the Patriot Act. And that's why this is such a, a, bad, a sad story is because by 9-11, while most Western democracies and most what you call just advanced democracies throughout the world have already a system of privacy protections in place, or at least a very strong platform from which they're going to build. By 9-11, we have a very, very weak system in place. And we also have a very rich tradition of subordinating civil liberties, privacy being one of them, in the face of wartime pressures, whether it be, you know, World War One with, you know, the anti, not just anti-German sentiment, but just, you know, the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act. And then flash forward to World War II with Japanese internment and things like that, then go right into the 50s with the McCarthy era and the way privacy invasions were used that way. And then all the stuff Nixon was doing with the anti-war protests in the 70s. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. So yes, we all the warning signals were there. We absolutely, by all measures, should have had a stronger system in place, and we don't. 
But the reason I mentioned um, consumer data as much is because, as you well know from the other podcasts that you've, that you've done, is so much of modern government surveillance isn't just this unilateral thing that the government does. It leans on private companies. That's one of the great revelations that came out of the Snowden leaks. It's one of the big things that you see from WikiLeaks as well is the relationship between corporate America and the United States government in terms of privacy. So uh, and and how that relationship ultimately creates these algorithms that, you know, the NSA has repeatedly have figures gone on record about how, you know, the government is able to use this private consumer information in conjunction with its own surveillance apparatus to create an incredibly disturbing surveillance state and one that anybody who cares about civil liberties, whether you're on the left or on the right, it's, it's definitely important for all Americans. So let's let's let me ask you you know, a two-part question. Actually, just to just to peg us before I want to talk about COVID-19. Sure. So before COVID-19, which was, you know, the before world, and let's, you know, let's say let's let's go as soon as a few months ago, where were where were Americans, where was the US government on on this whole issue? Where did you see it? Were we getting better at realizing what was going on? Or was it, you know, a, a fast track to where I think we might be. I think we were getting much better. Uh, I'm also a, an information privacy professional, and so I consult with companies, and, and I have to keep abreast of the laws to make sure companies are compliant. And largely due to Europe's passage of the GDPR, which is this massive, very, very good data protection law that provides a comprehensive model, American companies were being frequently forced to comply to those European laws simply because if you're an American company and you have a a customer that's based in Europe, or if you want to hold any data from any European customer, you had to comply with these laws. So it got to the point where American companies, because of economic realities, not because of any great social movement, found themselves having to be compliant with these stricter laws. So most of them were just saying, you know what, screw it. Let's just make our privacy practices the same as what's going on in Europe. That way we don't get tagged and things don't get too complicated. And we were at a point where, especially after Facebook and the Cambridge Analytica hack and you know, and that was that was essentially what gave birth to the GDPR, was it not? Um, I wouldn't say. Well, the GDPR was a month away from being passed when you had a uh, Zuckerberg showing up to Congress talking more about Cambridge Analytica. So it was something that was in the works for a while. Particularly, um, the Europeans have always had a, I think, a better relationship with privacy regulation in general, and so their laws have been stricter. And this is in many ways, I'd say. Prompt, not prompted by, but definitely nudged along by Cambridge Analytica. But it was also there's the scandals, repeated scandals of the early twenty of the early two thousands as well. Whether it be the credit bureaus being hacked or major corporations being hacked, and you know Yahoo and people's emails, it was just so many scandals that eventually people's data started being regarded and understood as being much more important. They were also the first to pass what's called the right to be forgotten, which is largely your ability to scrub your Google search histories and things that are there. But I guess one of the big lessons I wanted to take uh, would be two things. One, I thought it was getting better, and it was getting better in a way that it still might because the lesson that I was talking about in the 20th century is that one of the reasons privacy gets its ass kicked in America is largely because it was at odds with the profit motive, that you have Corporations losing money because of privacy protections, and so they push against it and they do that successfully. What's been super interesting about the 21st century is so many people care about privacy now that privacy itself is becoming a commodity. And so if you've ever seen Apple's ad campaigns over the last couple of years where they're like privacy first, 
And, you know, you have major, major companies going out of their way to communicate to their consumers that they care about people's privacy and that consumers, it's, we're not all the way there yet, but it's encouraging in that the rise of VPNs, the fact that cybersecurity has become a multi-billion dollar industry globally. Privacy is something now that people can make money and attract consumers protecting. And before COVID-19, it seems like we were all really on that train. And I'm very curious to see if the privacy pressures brought on by COVID-19 are going to accelerate that, or if they might end up toward their deterioration. Enter contact tracing apps. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of like a nuclear warhead on privacy. Yeah. Even though it's, it's, it's a measure in which we need to take on in order to combat the modern plague. And we all want it to end. And this, this could be a way for us to, for, to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what shows, I think, the beautiful dual yin and yang kind of nature of privacy. Because very often, you know, it's most privacy advocates, they'll usually paint anyone who invades privacy as this kind of cloaked villain, right? That just has sinister intent. But the real history of privacy shows us that usually Americans are giving up privacy or the pressures that push up against their privacy often do come with benefits, whether it's corporate efficiency, convenience, or even national security. And again, the national security arguments used for sinister purposes a lot, but it's also a legit argument in many regards. I mean, keeping people safe is something that's a fundamental aspect of what government should do. We just have problems when it goes way too far, as it often does. And so COVID's a really good example of that because Contact tracing, particularly from a voluntary standpoint, I mean, talk to any major scientist. This could be the game changer, the thing that really prevents flare-ups, the thing that really helps allow our, our economy to come back and prevent all of the devastation that's going to happen to people's lives with, you know, a new Great Depression while also waiting for a vaccine. You know, contact tracing could be the thing that saves lives, that also helps us get back and, and we have this big win. But, I mean, it's also this massive massive potential to be abused and to just be turned in a way and break through privacy barriers that had never existed before and to create a new level of mass surveillance that we've never seen before. So the solution then is we need to find a middle ground between those. A lot of privacy advocates will speak abstractly. They'll say things like, yes, let's find a third path or a middle ground and then, you know, hard stop. And then that's the end of the op-ed. But no, we've already learned that there are ways that we can absolutely do this. First and foremost, having full transparency about how this information is used would be important. Anybody who's participating in the program should be able to go online and check immediately how their contact tracing has worked and the extent to which it's been there. We also need what are called privacy officers which would be these third party groups that essentially, do you know like the SEC, like what they do with the stock market, where yes. they're basically, you know, a form of like Oversight. law enforcement with like, you know, accounting degrees, right? And they sit there. Although I will and, say, I will say that, you know, they also have their their downsides of being very tight with Wall Street. Sure, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, there, there's always that thing. But the principle you can say is good. And it's also something that ironically came out of the New Deal and the Great Depression. People didn't mm -hmm. trust the stock market, we had to find a way to reinvigorate faith in the market. So we came up with this idea, hey, do you want to trade? Fine. But this guy from this office who knows all these laws, he's going to be in your office and he's going to check that you're compliant all the time. And we can have the same thing with this um, COVID tracing. You can have privacy officers, people who are go through, you know, six to eight week certification programs, make sure that they're up on what the laws, what's proper use, what's not proper use. And as soon as someone violates it, 
flag it. I'm not saying it's a miracle cure, but it's definitely something that could help get us move toward the right direction. And then we also need, just like the ACLU stated in their website when this happened, we need an adequate pledge that once this is done, it's done. That there's not going to be any mission creep, data creep. There's not going to be any third party usage or the sharing with data. Once once this system's taken care of, you're going to dismantle it or we need to know the reason why. It's like it's like in Batman when they destroy the machine. Beautiful, beautiful, unethical, dangerous. You've turned every cell phone in Gotham into a microphone and a high frequency generator receiver. You took my sonar concept and applied it to every phone in the city. With half the city feeding you sonar, you can image all of Gotham. This is wrong. I've got to find this man, Lucius. Dude, I was that's exactly what I was thinking about like twice during this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> when Morgan Freeman and uh, Bruce Wayne get together yeah. and they destroy the uh, <laughs> they destroy the machine. Yeah, I always felt the Leviathan. I always thought that Gotham at the end really what they needed was comprehensive socioeconomic reform. But you know, uh, don't get me wrong, I love Nolan's Batman. I think they're great. But yeah, it is the Leviathan and it is something that uh, we need to put with significant safeguards. But also to be the kind of privacy advocate that just rails against it and says that this can't happen, I think is being very unrealistic. And it's important not to infantilize people and tell them that they shouldn't care about the things that they care about. If, especially if you're over 70, if you are in a vulnerable segment of the population, contract tracing can be the thing that saves not just your life, but your life's your families and things like that. And, you know, it could also prevent the despair that would come from a year long shutdown economically. So the benefits are certainly there. And it's what makes this so tricky is that usually government surveillance just had this one main thing, which was keeping us safe uh, in terms of a foreign actor, right? National security or criminals. This is something different when it's invading privacy or, or putting pressure on privacy to think about a biological element, something that's you know regarded largely as an act of God. This is a different kind of pressure and it's something we really need to keep both eyes on, but also speak intelligently about. Uh, I have faith that people can speak intelligently about these things and that we can come up with reasonable solutions. Um, I mean, I'm a skeptic and I think that it's just as possible that we don't, but it's not something to go running for the hills about, but it is something to look at dispassionately and to also remember that in these ages of partisanship and polarization and protest, privacy is one of these issues that really has the potential to unite left and right. You need to use different rhetoric for people on the right. You need to talk about civil liberties. If you have a fact that, the, you know, if you have a problem with the fact that the government's asking you to wear a mask, then you should definitely have a problem with contact tracing and the fact that they're looking to track everybody. And then on the left, if you have a problem with government overreach in a way that this can be used in different ways, then of course, caring about privacy and making sure that we keep our eye on contact tracing is something that you know should definitely be on in your wheelhouse and on your agenda. It's really one of the few issues that I can see out there that has the potential to get bipartisan support across the aisle, if not for different reasons and taking different paths to get to the same destination. But privacy is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be human. It should be regarded as a fundamental human right. And it's something that both sides of the aisle can really capitalize on. And if they do properly, um, you know, do some good for the nation. Well, Let's see where this goes. It'll be interesting. But it's it's uh, it's been a very interesting discussion talking about where all this data collection came from and really where modern surveillance began. And thanks for being on the show again. Thank you so much for having me.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, Jason, another week, another, it's like now we're going to go into months in our apartments recording. <laughs> I've just, this, uh, this cyber session on my computer is called cyber three, nine, three, two, three, two, uh, which is just a bunch of random numbers I typed because I've lost track of how many of these we've done. And rather than hit 10 and be like, do you want to replace this file? I just typed random file number. So who knows? It could, it's been three thirty nine thousand. 323 weeks of cyber <laughs> since I last saw the sun. Yeah. And if, you know, if the LA County stay at home order is to be upheld as well in New York City, we shall have another three months of this at least. Yeah. We have some, uh, some breaking news, sort of, kind of. A few minutes ago, the, at least when we're recording this, the Senate passed a reauthorization of the Patriot Act, I believe. Uh, that allows the FBI and law enforcement to spy on web browsing data without a warrant, which is just completely horrifying. It's happening like as we're recording this. So I actually don't know all of the specifics, but it's, it's very, very, very bad. So Senator Wyden was one of the people that's been going after this and basically said, I mean, I'm putting words into his mouth. He didn't say it like this, but like, this is fucking crazy. What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, we've seen this, like we've seen in the past, the Senate and the House have uh, passed rules or gotten rid of rules that prevented uh, ISPs from selling your browser data, but like allowing law enforcement to see this stuff without a warrant is just like, it's really, really horrifying. And it's something that we've been talking about on this show a lot. Like they didn't explicitly use the pandemic as a, a reason to do this, but it's like, you know, this is an expansion of surveillance powers during a pandemic yep. uh, without Big like, time. I, I didn't even hear about this until yesterday. And normally we we would have heard about this like for quite a while. So I think this is one of those things where it's like everyone's talking about the pandemic and then suddenly something horrible is snuck into a law and there's not time to mobilize around it. And it's just like, it's really bad. So as this is happening, I'm not sure if there's any like last ditch efforts that are that are going to happen. Um, I don't. I'm not sure if it still needs to pass the house. I just didn't have time to read up on it. But it's something that y- y'all should check out. It's not good. Um, and unfortunately, there was a widened uh, amendment that would prevent this, as you mentioned, and it failed by a single vote. And uh, which is like despicable. And like Bernie Sanders didn't even participate in the vote. And he was like a presumed, you know, was going to vote in favor of the amendment to block it. And it's like, it's unclear why Bernie Sanders didn't vote. I think it may, it might be like he just wasn't there for like coronavirus related reasons. But it's, it's, I don't know what's happening right now. It's, it's really bad. Oh, yeah. God. Um, but anyways, that's, that, that's that, terrifying we didn't plan to talk about this, but it just happened. So I thought I'd mention. 
Yeah, well, we were about to talk about Widen anyways, but I think that's even worse. <laughs> like way worse. Yeah. Way, way, way yeah, worse. Yeah, I mean, the other thing and is, you know, uh, so Senator Wyden wants Congress to investigate which local cops have hacking tools. And we've seen in the past, like local cops have uh, access to Gray Key, which is this uh, iPhone unlocking tool that um, is able to bypass Apple's um, passcode situation, like the passcode lockout situation that we've talked about in the past. And then earlier this week, Joseph reported that NSO Group, who we've talked about one million times on the show, uh, was mm-hmm. advertising its iPhone hacking software to San Diego police as recently as 2017, I believe, or 2018. So, uh, yeah, we didn't actually know that NSO Group was operating in the U.S. in any real way. Uh, they operate through a subsidiary or like a sister company called Westbridge something or other. So Joseph got a hold of a brochure that showed that they were advertising to American police, which is just like not not great. No, it's not chill. And also NSO Group, a frequent greatest hits album for us. Yeah. <laughs> they make constant appearances on the show for their... In fact, we even did a an entire episode about how they can't stay out of bad news. Well, here you go. This is just more of it, yeah. Another story from uh, old Lozo, Mr. Lorenzo Franceschi Bicchierai. iPhone research tools. Basically, I mean, I mean, this this kind of just goes back to what Apple's been doing and been very serious about it is protecting their products from any scrutiny and being at all having the right to repair them. This kind of goes back to this a similar a similar a similar issue. Yeah, I mean is this this is one of the biggest stories I think in like the hardcore cybersecurity world. Like this story isn't really being talked about too much among the general public because it largely affects cybersecurity researchers and and like the that industry as well as research community. Uh, basically, Apple is suing Corellium, which is a I believe Florida based company that creates an iPhone, an iOS emulator and an Android emulator. So rather than trying to hack an iPhone, like a physical iPhone, you can hack a virtual version of it, which is just much more forgiving. You can do a lot more different things with it. And um, the, like Apple is going after them with a copyright suit, which we've talked about multiple times in the past. I think- Yeah, and I mean, it also- it also goes back to security researchers being able to like look at iPhones and 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 you know examine how safe they are and if they have any issues and then be able to responsibly disclose to to Apple as well, right? Like this is not just researchers being able to do this is a good thing for everyone. Yeah, it's definitely a good thing for everyone, but nonetheless like there's now a court case about it because Apple is saying that Corellium infringed on their copyright to iOS and I think what Corellium is doing here is really smart. It's making an a legal argument under the DMCA, which is the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is basically saying that they have a fair use to this uh, to this software and this code because what they're doing is substantively transformative, which is um, you know one of the one of the tests that fair use falls under. Um, there are also exemptions to the DMCA that allow for security research and emulation as well. And so their most recent argument is that uh, Corellium is very similar to a video game emulator, which multiple courts have ruled are legal. Um, what isn't legal is sort of like the uh, 
creation and distribution of ROMs, which are the games that are played on on these emulators. Um, and even then, there's some carve-outs too. It's a very complicated area of law that we don't need to get into. But uh, basically, Corellium is saying that they're just creating the emulator and then other people are, are um, you know, researching on it and that this software has been used for good and it's making iOS more secure and yet Apple is going after them. So this is, like I said, this is a huge deal in the security research world and it's been a developing story for a few months. So we'll, we'll keep covering it. Yeah. And we've, I mean, I got to say, we do some of the best right to repair stories. You yourself really take it seriously. <laughs> You're a big fan of the right to repair story. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I am. Huge fan. And, but it is, it's it's also one of those, but you know what? It's one of those stories where like the minutia of it is not always completely understood by the general public, but it's something that directly affects how people are able to repair their fucking iPhones. Like even me, like I'm half the time, I'm like, I have a crack in something and some pisses me off in my phone. I'm like, I got to go wait in line for like whatever, four fucking hours to get my iPhone fixed by a genius. Another thing that pisses me off about going to a, going to an Apple store. But yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, I having the right to do something to it. Had, yeah, I haven't had the uh, time to dive like deep into the legal argument and also look at like what aspects of the DMCA they are citing. But as you said, like the minutia of this stuff really matters because you know, these big companies always try to get off on a technicality or always, you know, bring up these very specific parts of laws that aren't super well understood often. And so it's important that people who are advocating for, uh, you know, the right to repair or the right to tinker or the right to emulate, understand these laws and read them and understand like what the boundaries are. Because if you step outside of those boundaries, you know, Apple and it's, billions and billions of dollars might come crashing down on you, which is kind of what happened here to Corellium. Absolutely. <laughs> also, I just a last sidebar about this. I love how these like tech companies call themselves such stupid names like Corellium. Come on. Like it's like Palantir or like, I don't know. I don't know Half if Corellium the refers like, to, but I kind of like, I like the name. I don't know what it refers to, but no, I, I don't, I don't. Okay. It's just okay. always like some That's weird fine. Greek shit. I, I don't, I'm just, I'm not a fan. I'm not here for it. I got to be honest with you. I'm just yeah. not here for okay. it. A All story right. I am here for though is Gita's story about if the office were slacked. I, I just, you know what? Let's end on a nice note. I think this would be actually, this is kind of funny and it's sweet and we need this now more than ever. Yeah, so this art collective called MSCHF, which is mischief without all of the vowels, uh, is recreating every episode of this of the office in slack so uh in like between 9 and 5 p.m monday through friday so it's basically like michael scott chatting to his employees uh about the minutiae of what's going on and it's really fun it's like slow tv rolled out at an excruciating level and i i think Pace. um yeah <laughs> it's cool have you checked it out or no I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Do you like the, office? I'm into it. Like, I, I think, I also think this is like, it, it, it caught me because it's sort of like, wow, the office would be different if it were made now. It's like one of those where you, you, you really see like, like something that you thought was contemporary and still in some ways consider contemporary, but really you look back and like 10 years or even six years, seven years since it, it aired, whatever it was, 
like the technological jumps that have happened since have been so vast, it completely changes the way that these these modern work environments would look like. And yeah. I just thought that was a really, really cool thing. Yeah. It's kind of like when someone said to me that parks and recreation, that like parks and recreation wouldn't work nowadays, wouldn't be the same because whatever the character played by Nick, uh, Nick Offerman, Off- Offenheim? O- Offerman, yeah, Offerman would be like, he would be MAGA and it wouldn't be, he wouldn't be as <laughs> like as sympathetic a character to like the liberal audiences that watch that show. Oh, and I thought that was interesting. That is interesting, but I feel like he always not not to get deep into like Parks and Rec analysis, but I feel like he was a pretty deep character who just like I don't think he'd be down with Trump, you know. Like I think that I don't think so, but it was just it was a good it was a good way of sort of like earmarking the difference in in how some of these shows would look, right? Like I think there would be a question whether or not maybe he'd be a silent Trump voter. Yeah, you know, it's but it, it it's uh I kind of like these these thought experiments of like updating updating shows and this was obviously i mean you we 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 used to sit in the office in silence <laughs> like the entire motherboard team and then we'd just you'd hear like sporadic laughter right when we're all like piling onto something in the slack channel yeah <laughs> that's that's like it's a much different awesome office environment than say you know what we would have been what it would have looked like 10 years earlier wow i just joined this slack it's really there's 14,000 people watching it it's really interesting that's so yeah. sick. Everyone check it out. It's uh just find it on our website because I don't it has a complicated URL. So find it on um motherboard.vice.com. Check us out. Check us out. Check the blog. I'm a bounce. Farewell. All right. That's good. Okay. Be well. Okay, Peace. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 